I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Welcome to Sick Boy, a podcast where we talk about what it's like to be sick. This week's guest is Beth. She has breast cancer. Let's talk about it. I'm really excited to be having a conversation today with Beth. Um, first of all, I'll let you guys know, Beth is a physiotherapist by trade, um, but now works in a long care administration, uh, works in long care administration, long term care. Yep. care. Um, but Beth, I've got to, I, I, I want to get this out of the way so that I'm not thinking about it the entire conversation. Sure. As a physiotherapist. Yes. What are your thoughts? <laughs> what are your thoughts? Uh, no, 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 no. Hold on. Hold on. No, you can't. No, you cannot bring up. You cannot no, no. bring up a personal issue. I'm not. I'm not bringing up a personal issue. I'm wondering what. Do you have any thought? Do you know what a ring dinger is? No. Okay. <laughs> this is a. This is a. What are your thoughts on chiropractors? Sound very clean. What is he's, a ring it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, He's fishing. It's a. Yeah. It's a technique used by some chiropractors, and it looks. Huh completely wild and we, okay. we we covered it on feel good friday a couple weeks ago okay and mm-hmm. I, and basically it has to do with like wrapping a towel around someone's head around their chin yeah. and then you're standing over them and they're laying on, the, on on a bed and you basically like try to pull their head off their body oh is it is it it sounds like it just might be traction like um yeah pulling? but traction traction with like the force of a shotgun blast okay. <laughs> yeah i mean like calling it traction calling it traction uh, violent <laughs> would traction be, would be like okay. the nicest way of putting what looks like an extremely dangerous <laughs> maneuver <laughs> yeah anyway i We've been we we talked about it and we've been waiting for like someone in the in the realm of like health professionalism to get back to us and let us know okay. if it's legit. But if you don't know, we'll move yeah. on. We'll uh, move yeah, on. I'd have to say overall, as a gross generalization, physiotherapy approach to treatment tends to be a little more gentle and yeah. a little bit more like here's what you can do for you. That's right. Yeah. Right. So yeah, we don't do as like crazy. That's <laughs> diplomatic. That is my yes. favorite That's thing. That's very diplomatic. Yeah. That is my favorite <laughs> thing about physiotherapists though. It's like the physiotherapist, when I go to a physiotherapist, I, I get a, I get a double whammy of feeling like, okay, I've just been, I've just been like taken care of by this person. Sometimes there's some like, you know, hands-on manipulation, things like that. And that's like, that feels nice. But then I also feel like I'm, I I've got like an accountability accountability right. buddy, you know where they they're going. Right. Wait, hold on. What did you say? An accountability buddy. An accountability. I like that. I like that. Someone who is your buddy who is keeping you okay. accountable. accountable. Okay. Your accountability buddy. I've never. That's a great term. I've never heard that either. And they are there to be like, hey, here's some stuff that you should go do at home. Yep. And to take care of your body. And it's like, it's it's really nice. It's nice. But what? Let's move on to Beth. What? Just just out of just out of curiosity. How did you go from doing physiotherapy to long-term care administration? Like, what was the transition there? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So I've been working, I started in private practice, uh, which I loved. It was like a sports medicine clinic, actually in the CTC, where the senators play. Cool. Back in the day, we're talking like 20 years ago now. 
Um, great clinic, great clientele, but you're, um, most physiotherapists who work in private clinics are self-employed. So if you don't show up for your appointment, I don't get paid. Mm-hmm. At the same time, I started uh, working in hospitals. My dad's a social worker, my mom's a nurse. So came from like a long line of hospital workers. And that's just a bit more of a steady gig. Like you show up, you get paid no matter what, right? So I was mm-hmm. kind of doing all three and I was young and keen. And moving through, I eventually let go of the private practice when they, um, the owner sold the clinic to like a big conglomerate. And I had... Uh, I had my first kid. So I wanted to know if I was going to work, I was gonna get paid. Mm -hmm. So shifted to the hospital, (laughs) um, which can be really, really rewarding, but the work is really, really different. You know, like in in private practice, it's about getting that person, especially in a sports clinic where I was, getting that person back to like the big race or Mm -hmm. the game, or it's a little bit flashier and sexier. And in the hospital, it's sometimes like getting that 95 year old to walk from the bed to the chair. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah. you have to take a lot more um, love out of the process and and those little, little, little wins. Mm. So as I was longer and longer in that, I, I wasn't feeling maybe as, uh, the hospital is such a complex ecosystem and, and physio sometimes can kind of get positioned as an overpaid orderly. Yes. Yeah. I Look, I, not to cut you off, but... Yeah. That's how it felt when I like I, I've been I've been hospitalized a number of times over my life. Right. Right. And one of the last times, which was quite serious, I had like a, like, you know, serious abdominal surgery. Yeah. And I remember being spending time with the physiotherapist. And I that I kind of got that sense. I kind of got that sense as a patient feeling like this is sort of how it feels. And then I also felt it as a patient looking at the physiotherapist, okay. almost being able to tell like you you don't. This is this is not a space that you are like enjoying because you know uh-huh. I know a few physiotherapists. One of my okay. closest friends is a physiotherapist, and they, they you know they have a real love for their job. But yep. in the hospital, there's like a it's like it's like over sterilized, and yeah, there was like this sort of order. That's I, it could I've never be it could be it tainted way. because I, I I I kind of I hear what you're saying. I had a kind of a similar experience after I broke my pelvis, and like I feel like there may be. I feel like we as patients, when you're in, like, I know that when you're in the hospital, you're there because like you really need you're to be feeling there. great. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I yeah. was there because I got hit by a car. Yeah. And like, you, you know, your kind of like worldview is, yeah. is skewed uh, a bit. Skewed sure. while yeah. you're in there. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. This, it's, th- it's just a bit of a narrow, it's a bit of a narrow role. And, you know, the hospital is very hierarchical. Right, everything goes from like doctor to nurse to physio, and you kind of fall in rank. Mm-hmm. And then I found myself as I got older, wanting to understand more, like the decisions that went into a lot of things around in the hospital, so around staffing or, or whatever. I was really interested in the the, the behind thing. So I started uh, actually six months before I got diagnosed with cancer. I started my uh, master's of health administration because mm. I, in my head, I was on the road to leadership. This is what Ooh. I wanted um, to do. So that's sort of where it all started. And I actually did, after I returned to work, get into leadership at the hospital that I worked at for 18 years. And it was not good. Ooh, <laughs> wow. I went back in COVID and yeah. a lot of factors. Um, so I ended up only staying that in that for nine months and went to long-term care where the pace is a bit, a bit you know, slower. Uh, but still meaningful, and I work with like a fantastic team and the best boss I ever mm-hmm. have is, ever had. Is, wor- is working in long-term care um, is, uh, similar, obviously very different, but like similar, are there any similarities to working in the private practice in terms of, you know, like you've got, 
in the private practice, we were working with people who are trying to, you know, recover from an injury so they can like get back to their sport or whatever yeah. their like, you know, their athletic Hobby. goals might be. Yeah. Um, and then when you're working in long-term care, like in terms of like, do the stakes feel as high in terms of, mm. you know, these people are in long-term care and their ability to be mobile is like a, is like a, cr- a huge crucial aspect to their ability to feel like they are living, you know, like that they are, that they are thriving might, might, might be the wrong word to use for a lot, for a lot of people who who are in long-term care, but, um, or in, in, at least in, in the sense of living in long-term care, that they're thriving, that they're able to participate, do things, you know, feel like they are, you know, um, yeah, that's a big thing in long-term care. So the role I do right now is like quality and risk management. So I don't provide care anymore, like bedside care, but I sort of oversee like a lot of, uh, you know, the work that goes on in the home. And one big thing in long-term care that's really, we're trying to drive, and I think they do a much better job than acute care, is we call like person-directed care. So Mm -hmm. like if you want to work on your walking, if that's a goal for you, then how can we help you accomplish that? Now, if you've been in a wheelchair for 30 years, then maybe it's our role also to like say, hey, yeah, we can work on this with you, but maybe it's not realistic that you're going to be running 2K. You know, mm-hmm. so, so that we still want to really help, these, help our, let me call them our residents, or the, we say the people that live in the home, mm-hmm. so we the people that live in the home to, to live their best lives, however they see it. Mm-hmm. And then that's, that's a little bit of a struggle too, because sometimes the family's goals aren't the same as the people who live there. Right. And then long-term care, and I didn't understand this until I rolled into it, and people told me, and of course I didn't believe it until I got there, is so incredibly regulated. Like if you go work in a hospital, we kind of do what we want to do. Like if we want to try something new, we try something new. Like if we want to do this, we want to change staffing, we do, we do whatever we want. You get into long-term care and there are rules like residents must eat at 5 p.m. Oh. There are rules about how many hours that someone can get. It's not called physio, it's called restorative care. Like how many minutes per day. Like, and then inspectors just pop in like, Whenever they want. All right. It's like a unionized actor, you know? Yeah, it's really wild. It's really wild. Yeah. And is, is that, is that, sorry to cut you off, Brian, but yeah. is that like a, on that topic, is that a, is that, is that um, more on the side of trying to, are those regulations in place more so to try and take care of the patient or are they more so in there to like control cost? Mm, um, that's a good question. What's the balance? Yeah, there? I think. I think if you ask the lawmakers or the ministry, they're going to say it's there to protect the resident. And especially with after COVID and, and everything that, you know, came out, um, they actually put in a new new legislation, which is they, which is horribly named the Fixing Long-Term Care Act. Ooh. I work in a fantastic long-term care home, you know. Um, so there's that legislation piece, which I think is very political and but is touted as protecting the resident. But then we also work on a very limited budget. Though right. since this new act and since COVID, the money that's been poured into long-term care has been really significant. Yeah, that's really good. significant, yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm really curious about like that. When, you, when I hear you say like the residents have to all eat at you know five o'clock, for example, mm-hmm. it immediately makes my brain go, oh, no, 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 no. I, like I don't want to be old. I don't want to be in that situation yeah. because... I hate like structure and routine, yep. especially like in, you know, I know it's good for me right now in like my productive working life, 
But like when I'm older, I just want to be able to do whatever I want when right. I want. And maybe like that eat yeah. ice cream at 2 a.m. <laughs> yeah, right. right. And like maybe that sounds, I don't know, naive to think that that would be like something that could be possible. But but like it sounds yeah. kind of sad. And like when I when I think of having to sort of, a, you know, live in that group setting and it, it also makes me think of like the 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 Danish sort of system where yes. they're like, hey, well, we don't want to have long term care homes. We want right. to have, you know, uh, elderly stay in their personal residence for yeah. as long as they they can. Like, how do you how do you try to meet people where they are in terms of what they want, but also, you know, appreciate and respect the fact that it is a group of people living together and you're trying to do it in the most cost effective way and yeah. provide the best care. It sounds right. like such a, 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 an incredibly hard task to balance. Yeah. You just, yeah. You just summarize the whole struggle <laughs> in publicly funded long-term care in Canada, like perfectly. Ooh. And, and I think our home does really well at that. So for one example, we use a lot when we talk to the staff is uh, Mrs. Smith, always slept in at home, at her home, her previous home, because we actually mm -hmm. call this her home. We, we say we work in their home. So, so Ms. Smith would always get up late. She likes to sleep in. So we need to let her sleep in. Ooh. But then there's the pull of the staff who is going to be more <laughs> challenging on them to let Mrs. Smith sleep till 10 and then get her food and whatever when everyone else is trying and then there's pills and then there's whatever. So mm. it's always this thing, but it, we do a lot of education around trying to tell the staff like it's okay and, and it's not just about like checking the boxes and getting that next task done mm -hmm. no one's going to get in trouble if you let mrs smith sleep till 10 a.m that's what mm -hmm. she wants to do that's what she's used to so even like the dinner rule that the government imposes upon us we can work around it but we actually have to chart it like right. we actually have to say that mrs smith prefers to eat at four and then everyone, all the staff needs to be aware that Mrs. Smith needs to eat at four, needs to be in her care plan, and people need to know to follow it. Right, so because like tricky. if the regulators show up and they're like, well, it's five o'clock, and Ooh, or like it's, it's nine o'clock in the morning, where's Mrs. Smith? She hasn't yeah. eaten breakfast yet. What the fuck? Yeah. And you're like, exactly. well, yeah. right here. Yeah. It says. Don't worry about it. Mrs. Smith is cool. <laughs> she can do what yeah. she wants. <laughs> and then and the, we're the, cool the, with that. <laughs> right? And then if you don't do, if you don't follow that rule, they give you a finding, and then they write, so they write you up essentially, and then that goes on the internet. So wow, you could Google right. the name of the place that I work and you could find the findings. You can do that for all long term. Sure. Sure. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, this is, this is, this is making me realize that I like, I would love to have a full episode just about the ins and outs of like long, long-term care mm. yeah. because we, we actually, haven't really visited no, since that. We haven't visited since like COVID when, yeah. when like it was, when long-term care was like very much at the forefront of like everyone's mind because it yeah. was a, it was a very hot topic during COVID. Um, but, but the fun thing is, we're is not, that we're not even that? here to talk about that. It, there was a little, there was a little spoiler that was just kind of like dipped in that little mm -hmm. conversation there. Which I was going to ask about it. Which was uh, <laughs> the the c word. Uh, Beth had a cancer diagnosis, and um, Beth, I know that this this kind of came to you at a at a you know a pretty like interesting point in your life. Uh, I, I mean. Maybe maybe not to you. I, I look at a 40th birthday as like a yeah. big, that's a big deal for me. Like turning 40, that's huge. Um, diagnosed can with cancer right before your 40th birthday. Sounds like a huge bummer. Uh, can you maybe give us a little bit of insight into the, you know, the diagnosis, what kind of cancer and and sort of the 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 story of like, what was that experience like for you? 
Yeah, sure. Yeah. I, first off, incredible bummer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like yeah. we were planning, yeah. we were planning a party, like a big party. Like my husband had even ordered, actually I found some recently, these little stickers of my face in like a cartoon <laughs> form <laughs> that he was, was going to like have around and I was, never had the part, never had the party. Um, certainly wasn't no uh, psychological shape to do that. So, Ooh. so yeah, so it kind of came, so I'll tell you, I have no family history of breast cancer. Um, we think maybe there was a great aunt now that we're talking about it, family's talking about it a bit more. Maybe there was a great aunt, but no one seemed to really know. She did pass fairly young from breast cancer. Um, so yeah, I was going on doing my thing and, and looking back now, I'll tell you the, and I always share the story with women. I had a little bit of tightness in my armpit and I work Mm. out fairly regularly. So I thought it was something from working out. And I only felt that tightness when I brought my arm over my head way up here. So like, it was very easy to be like, ah, I probably pulled something. I don't know what I was Mm. doing, Mm -hmm. whatever, right? Um, The other piece to this, which I talk also a lot about is I had had very dense breasts and having very dense breasts increase your uh, chances of breast cancer fourfold. Whoa. Yeah, so it's actually a bigger risk factor than family history. I did not know that. I did not know that I had dense breasts. Wow. I I knew. Well, like, what is? I'm sorry. What does that even mean? Yeah. So dense in size, like, are they synonymous? What's the? No, they're not. So the only way you can actually know if you have dense breasts, and there's really good pictures you'll see in mammograms. So, and as someone who doesn't have a dense breast on a mammogram, it almost looks clear. Like you can almost kind of feel like you see through it. And a woman who has very dense breasts, it's white. It's, oh, like a, yeah. it's like a whiteout. Yeah, I yeah, like a photo here. So like the, uh, just showing the guys here for people that are just listening, but like that, yeah. that to me looks like a not so dense breast, uh, undense. Uh, wait, undense, yeah. Less oh, dense. Fa- uh, a fatty, a fatty breast. Fatty, and then, and right. then you have scattered and then you have heterogeneously uh, dense and then yeah. extremely dense. I feel like you I know it. the difference but, based on touch. But well, well, I was going to say like, is this something <laughs> so, that you can see? Like I could recognize. Is this it. something you can see visually or <laughs> is it in a lineup? And or yeah. is it something you can see visually and or is it something that you can, that you can palpate. feel like palpate right. and feel? Right. Like Brian said. Yeah. So that's another <laughs> palpate sort of mis- is the word we were looking yeah. for. Palpate is the medical term. Squish. Well, I mean, I'm not, <laughs> I, I'm not yeah. saying I would know medically. I'm just yeah. saying I feel like I'd know. Right. Right. <laughs> we're, we're with you, Brian. <laughs> yeah, yeah, fair, fair, fair. So that's sort of in because, of course, there's dense breast advocacy now, and it's a it's a big thing. We're trying to trying to get timing of mammograms okay. moved, mm, but um, the you actually can't. Now, I would have told mm. you that I had boobs that felt like marbles. That I used to feel a lot of like lumps and bumps. That was very standard for me. But the, these groups tell you that don't assume. And actually, it's funny, I had a, someone reach out to me recently. She's like, I don't think I have dense breasts. I'm like, well, make sure when you get that first mammogram you ask. So it actually says on the mammogram, your density. So those pictures you just showed, Jeremy, they go on a mammogram, it would say A, B, C, D. Yes. And if you're right, if you're C and D, your chances of getting breast cancer, again, increase fourfold. So, so it's really, right. really good to know, but you can only know for sure if you have a mammogram and I never knew, I never, I never knew that because I, I did know my boobs felt like marbles, but I didn't know that increased my chance of breast cancer. I had no idea until I had a mammogram that showed I had breast cancer mm. and the tech said, Hey, heads up, you have very dense breasts. And I said, what does that mean? And she's like, huh. Oh, it actually means like, blah, blah. I'm like, Oh, well, that's good to know. I have a question for you. 
and this is this is sort of like breast density generally, um, yeah. not not specifically for you, but and just curious if if you know like through your research and through your experience and everything. Um, so my I uh, my my wife we have a one year old and. Mm. My wife, I would have said, again, from not knowing, and I'm not a mammogram machine, but I would have said, <laughs> dense breasts. Okay. I would have said, knowing this, knowing what I know now of, your, yeah. of what you just told me. Yeah. A year of breastfeeding, just finished breastfeeding, right. her breasts are totally different now. Right. right. I wouldn't say they're, I would, I would now go, not dense. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so is, can can breast density change over time for something like that or is it like yeah. what you're what you got is what you got and it's not going to change yeah what you got is what you got because it okay. really is like like fattiness or fibrots and when i when i read my final pathology because i ended up doing um preventive mastectomy on the other side as well they talked about that fibrinous and that yeah. that thing and they break it down to the cellular level and that okay. was yeah. really impactful. I, I so, have another yeah. I have another image here. Um, so it's like the four categories of breast density. Yeah. Um, so again, like you said, there's A, B, C, D, right? D would be the de- like the dense, and A would be just like right. the, the fatty. So uh, they they break it down on this on this as one, two, three, four. So one being A, uh, breasts are almost entirely fatty. And, and they have like a little image that goes with it. Two or B would be breasts that have scattered areas of fibogranular density. And then three or C is breasts that have heterogeneous density. And then four is breasts are almost entirely glandular and fibrous tissue. Right. So, and I was um, a D. Mm-hmm. Which and I so it's like, it's like these, these, these sort oh, of yeah. fibrous mm-hmm. glandulars yeah. are just basically filling up and it's less of the fat. Yeah. That's, that's, uh, I just learned something. That's, that was, that's, that, that's very helpful. That like diagram is very right. helpful. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, and that's from, uh, that's from verywellhealth.com, uh, breast and breast cancer risks. Um, that's yeah. so fascinating. Isn't okay. That really so interesting. So there's a big push now, well, across Canada, but right, mammograms don't start standardly till you're 50. You don't need a referral. You could just call and, and get one. But the push now is trying to, and this does exist in many places in the States, um, is to start them at 40 so, so that you know and that you're aware and to make sure that that, sh- that density is shared. It never even used to be on reports. Um, right. Yeah, so, that's, so, so my first mammogram was the one telling me I had cancer. And, and you were saying wow. that, because this is another thing that you mentioned that, that you, you, know, you, you don't have, as far as you know, outside of yeah. this possibly the great aunt, you don't, have, aunt yeah. you don't have the family history. And um, I guess like for... Uh, kind of a two-part question here so the first one is i'm assuming it's much more common for for women to uh get a diagnosis of breast cancer if they do have a family history because um, the screening's better too yeah. right sure okay but but we also now know or it's it's becoming more known that this breast density could it um, has even more of a chance more. of of getting a, a diagnosis. Wow! Yep. And, and is wow. that sort of is that putting? You know, if we were to change the if we were to change the timing of mammograms right. because we understand that if we understand the density of someone's breast, then we can uh, we can we can we can make screening better going forward. It is that also. I remember. I can't remember when this was. It was in the last few years. There was a. Uh, you know, I probably saw it at the grocery store in all the magazines of like Angelina Jolie is going to get her oh, breast removed. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And it seemed like that was a little bit of like a, uh, that kicked up a little bit of a storm around the, the, right. the, the idea of, of, uh, of, uh, proactively mm. getting, um, 
uh, mastectomies, right? Uh, to 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 just try to eliminate the the opportunity for to get breast cancer. Is that something that, like in the breast cancer world, is is something? I guess it's not in the breast cancer world. People yeah. who have people who don't have breast cancer, is that something that is becoming more common? Is that like a, a is that does that play into these earlier mammograms that are showing breast density and giving you choices as how you might go into the future yeah. if you have a higher chance of getting breast cancer? That's really interesting. That's a really good question. So I, so really in Canada, they won't do a full on prophylactic, like no cancer diagnosis mastectomy, unless you have a genetic, i.e. Mm. like a BRCA gene, right? One or two, you probably maybe have heard that term, which Angelina had. So, so if you're BRCA, if mean they do a genetic test and they see that you have the gene that predisposes you to cancer, they will do a prophylactic mastectomy. So you'll see oh, okay. that a lot of women in their 20s and 30s who, who's usually whose mother had had cancer and then she got tested, so they all got tested. Right. Um, that's the only time you'll see that. And there's a, like I ended up having the right, I was listening um, to your previous guest, Amanda, who was American and, and noting some of the, the little differences. So I'll give you another example. So in Canada, they don't even, like I right away was like, take my other side, like take it. And they're like, no. And I'm like, I'm like, yes. And, and the theory, again, in the Canadian system, they made me wait and I still fought, I still fought was because a, we don't want to take it right away. It caused an infection on that side by chance and that delay any more treatment, like such as radiation. Mm. And I'm like, hmm, hmm, hmm. That doesn't seem like a strong argument to me, but when the surgeon's like, I'm not going to do it, they're just like, oh, right. And then <coughs> later I had a different surgeon and I, by then I had a pre, another mammogram on the right side. So the non-cancer side as screening. And then because they're so dense, that's another thing too, about doing mammograms and the, the anti-argument to starting mammograms earlier is that you're more likely to get a false positive in younger breasts. Mm. So Just because of the fibrous material. You got it. Yes. Yeah, so, so there probably will be a little more false positives, maybe mm. more biopsies that don't lead to anything, but there'll right. be a lot more people caught early too. So Right. Yeah. It's a tough balance. It's the tough balance. Um, but at least give women the option, right? At least give women the information and the option. So I end up having that happen to me after I had cancer on the left, had the biopsy on the right, false, po- false positive, And I lost it in the surgeon's Whoa. office after I lost it. And I was like, listen, like through the tears, I'm like, I am never doing one of those again. So I will never have a mammogram again, or you'll take this. And she's like, she's like, okay. <laughs> like, nice okay. ultimatum. Thanks. Mm. So when I did the, I did the other kind of reconstruction Amanda was talking about, where they take like your stomach tissue and move it up, and it's crazy. Um, so when they did that, they took the right one and just reconstructed both at the same time. So when but that was re- big advocacy. So when you reconstruct, that is, you know, even though you're putting it in the same location, just because it's a different type of tissue, the risks are just not the, the same, the risks, the risks are just aren't there or. Yeah. That's that another thing the physicians really push against and why they say that taking the non-cancerous side doesn't change anything. And, and what they mean by that is it doesn't change your chances of your cancer coming back metastatic, right? Which probably happens the stats say 30%. I think it's probably a little bit lower because those are sort of old numbers. But 
just to clarify, metastatic yeah. is when it when it moves beyond the the like inception site. You got it. Yeah. So in breast cancer, that typically you'll see that show up in like as mets to your brain, mets mm. to your mm-hmm. spine, and mm-hmm. once that happens, you're deemed incurable. Right. So, mm. so the stage four could live for 10 years. Like mm-hmm. you, I've, you're hearing stories of even longer now, mm-hmm. um, but usually they base it off a five year offense. So I think one of the things that the doctors worry about when doing these prophylactic non-cancer side mastectomies is they're like, now you think you're okay. Right. Right. But maybe you're not okay. Yeah. You mm. know, so, but I, my argument was, I don't want to be poked and prodded for another 20 years because I have this dense breast and I know, I know what that picture looks like every time they yeah. scan it. It's a whiteout. So, and I'm not going to keep getting biopsies every six months or a year. So what are we going to do? You know, right. like this is a solution to that. And you're saying, and, and also I know that I might not be okay. And like, right. that's, that's okay. Yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm telling you this, I, I, right. I'm like of sound mind. So exactly. we don't have to worry about that. Yeah. yeah you don't yeah. get to make that decision for me. Yeah. Like, thank you for providing me the information. Mm-hmm. And I am now making this decision. <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. And f- from the from the perspective of like how you how you kind of handled and dealt with you know emotionally psychologically the 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 news that you had a breast cancer diagnosis. You are a physio. You worked in hospitals, long term mm-hmm. care. How how did like working in the medical system for so long? And then receiving a diagnosis. I mean, you spend obviously a lot of time around people who are dealing with a whole bunch of a whole range of really serious things that can affect their lives and long-term care. Obviously, you're working with a ton of people who are near the near the end of their life. How how did all that stuff kind of play into hmm. the way that you got your diagnosis and thought about mortality and that sort of thing? Yeah, I'd say hugely. I, I huge hugely from the moment actually that I found the lump to getting the screening, like getting the testing, like as an example, because I knew how the system worked because I understood. I like walked my referral down to the department where I worked and I said, Hey, and at first they're like, we can't get you in for a week. I'm like, well, just page me. Like just page. Yeah. We still have pagers. Just, just page me. I'll come down. And, and then after that, you know, by this point, my breast was actually red and was swollen. That's actually when I first noticed. I had the armpit pain, but I broke that off. And then I woke up one day, I'm like, I look red. I think I'm red. I think I'm swollen. And from there, I kind of just pushed it through and I pushed. So I did a lot of pushing and I did a lot of backdooring, maybe if you want to call it that, using my, I kept saying to myself, this is the only time in my life that working in healthcare I felt has actually benefited me. (laughs) Like, right? right? Like it's not the money and it's not the hours and it's not the glamour, but man, this is good. So, I kind of weaved through that, but it, at some points it was great. and other points it was tough. Like I got the diagnosis when um, it was taking a while. Oh, one of my, it's funny how things blend. It's been four years now, but one of the, like I did an MRI and it was kind of inconclusive and this biopsy, what ends up happening with cancer, especially as a tumor, my tumor was 10 centimeters, is when they, when they um, biopsy something so big, there's parts in there that are actually dead. So when they biopsied it, they got dead tissue. So it didn't actually have cancer, but then my armpit showed up with cancer. So they're like, well, that doesn't make any sense. So I had multiple tests to actually get to like the thing. And until one day I called my friend who runs the uh, CT and like the diagnostic imaging department at my hospital, wherever. And I'm like, Dennis, like, can you check in with the radiologist? What's going on? I don't hear anything. He just, the radiologist calls me down, takes me into like his little like dark room where patients are never meant to go. 
And he's this little like Asian guy with an accent and he pulls up the pictures and I don't understand what I'm seeing. Like mm-hmm. I, it's again, there, I think they were MRI pictures. Yeah, they were. And, uh, he, he, he told me the bad news, but he never used the word cancer. He's just like, I'm sorry. I'm like, for what? <laughs> you know what I had to say to him, like, yeah. do I have cancer? Yeah. And he's like, yes. I'm like, oh. Yeah. What do I have? <sighs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Say it again. Like, huh? <laughs> Say it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, like, so I, I definitely, I'm right off the top, I'm much more appreciation for what people are feeling. And then I also had a really big appreciation as I, as I moved through the system. Like, even though I knew how it should work and I knew, like, the communication can be bad at times and I knew there can be balls dropped, when it happens to you, you're like, holy shit. Like mm-hmm. how, how are others coping in this system? And they don't, they've never walked this walk before. They don't understand that you have to like call that secretary back three times when, when they don't rebook, uh, your, mm-hmm. a certain shot an infusion you need or something like that. Like, don't just sit there, like pick up the phone. Yeah. But I think if you didn't know, you would just be like, oh, well, the doctor knows, like, I'll just, I'll just sit tight or like mm-hmm. complaining, like that's complaining. See, people think it's complaining. Reporting symptoms, reporting that the neuropathy, like the tingling in my hands was so bad after we switched, we did a, a kind of chemotherapy routine that used two kinds. Mm. And when I went to the second kind, I ended up like in emerge, fever, neuropathy. I was a mess. Oh. And I went back and, and I said to my oncologist, like, what the hell? Like, I'm, I'm not doing that again. And, and he's like, he's like, yeah, fair. You didn't press it. But he also sort of patted me on the back for, for reporting my symptoms. And, and he said, and he only deals with breast cancer women. Mm. And he said, uh, typically women under report and they'll just suck it up mm. because that's what, that's what they think they need to do. And in the cancer world, what happens is they have what are called like protocols. So like on the first time you meet your oncologist, he's going to say, you're going to do six rounds of chemotherapy. It is called this. And then we're going to do surgery. And then you're going to do 25 rounds of radiation. And you're like, okay, yeah, okay, let's do that. Let's do that. But then as you delve into it and you move through it, there's, there's bumps and there's valleys. And, but many women that I met and that I still speak with now become fixated on that. And I get it because the doctor just said, this is what I need to do to live. Right. And then, but then you get a really big bump and then there's that gut feeling. And, and because I had the, the knowledge, I was just like, there's gotta be another way. Like, can mm-hmm. we do something different? Like, what about this? And, and so, you know, for example, that chemotherapy, we ended up stopping that one. We went back to the original and even after five rounds, I was supposed to do six. Like after the fifth, they delayed it. I couldn't get my numbers back up. There were various things going on. And I just said, I'm done. Like, I'm done. Like, let's move on. Like, let's move on to the surgery. This is enough. Mm. And he's like, he's like, okay. Okay. Now my husband was pissed at me. My mother was pissed at me. Mm. And you know, the ironic part, and this is sort of how I got into the research uh, work that I do now is when they went to do the surgery, there was no cancer left at all. So it's called a pathological complete response. So even though I stopped the protocol early, the cancer was actually completely gone, which no one would be able to know anyways, but it just sort of sat with me that like, you know, there's many ways to get to the same thing. And we really have to speak up and talk about how we're feeling and mm. not just keep your head to the ground and, and plow through, you know, and yeah. I don't think a typical person would feel like they could do that or 
feel empowered enough to do yeah, that. Yeah, that's a that's a really profound um point that you made about like the the do- the point that the doctor says like this is your treatment protocol and you attach it to that idea that that means like that's what you have to do to live. I remember yeah. like um talking to Brandon, our friend who had cancer at, at length about like his treatment protocols and like they kept changing and and evolving mm-hmm. over time and like as soon as they change as like as like a friend of his, I was like, Oh fuck. Um, that means that he's not doing well. Like it's not like, and, and it, it was never the idea of like, Oh, well we're going to, they're changing it because they're going to, you know, this is going to have a better outcome or like we learned something that Mm -hmm. it's going to be better. It was always like, this is the worst thing possible. They said that they had to do this initially. Now this isn't happening. Oh fuck. Like red alert. Mm -hmm. Right. Totally. And also on the side of like, on the side of like shortening it up and going to your doctor and saying, Hey, well, I I don't, I don't want to do the, I don't want to do this last round of chemo. It's like, well, I would imagine that I could be wrong here. Open to doctor feedback. I would imagine an an oncologist is probably not prescribing you like just enough (laughs) to try and get rid of it. Right. It's they're probably trying to engineers. Exactly. They're probably trying to build a bridge. (laughs) Exactly what I was thinking. Yeah. Like, let's not make it. Let's not make it exactly strong enough to fit the he- the heaviest truck that we know will definitely drive across this bridge. Like let's crank it up a little bit so that yeah. we've built in a little bit of a fail safe. I think with engineers I too, mean, it's like, it's a bad like, word to use in the, in cancer treatment, but I, th- I think with engineers, it's, it's literally um, like three to four times the amount of what you are, mm. are, are building for. You have to build it to be able to handle three to four times that. And like, I imagine that there's something similar with, with, um, you know, a treatment protocol for, for cancer. But I guess the, the other thing that you do have to consider though, is that they are poisoning you, mm-hmm. you know, it's poison right. that they're mm-hmm. So like, maybe they yeah. do want to be as close to that line as possible. Yeah, right. Right. You know, I think they take these protocols from research where it's sort of standardized over time. And the, these numbers have given the best results to large, large groups of people. Mm-hmm. But I, I think there needs to be a discussion right at the beginning that this is just a jumping off point. Like this is where we're going to start. And so that when that when a bump happens, like like you as a friend Brian or, or as a patient, you're just not like holy shit, yeah, I'm yeah. done, <laughs> you yeah. know, like yeah. what is happening? And so there's all like all medicine, there's a little bit of art and science to it, I think. Mm-hmm. Also, I, the worst thing too is like like your your family members and your loved ones, like like you said, you're good with it, and you're like yeah. advocating for yourself to say I don't need this one more. But then yeah. you know your 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 mom or your your yeah. your husband like that. And that's the thing that sucks is that you then have to go and educate those people in your life too, to share that with them so that they can, you know, help make your journey easier Mm -hmm. by understanding that the process is going to change, which is hard to communicate. It's 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 very hard. You don't have a lot of energy for that at that point. Right. Yeah. 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 I want to, I just want to like for just to let people know for context, because like it's, it's, um, I think it's very clear in sitting and talking with you that like not only a are you uh, coming off to the three of us as like a really, you know, a really valiant patient advocate, you know, like you are, you, you, you seem to know how to advocate for yourself very well, which is really nice to hear because that's something we're always like promoting is self-advocacy for patients when they are in a position where they, they need that and they don't have someone by their side that's, helping advocate for them. Yeah. Um, but also you're really smart, you know, your shit. And, <laughs> and, and there's, you know, it, I, I think just to give people a little bit of context into some of the work that you do, 
Um, you're you're on a board of directors uh, for uh, Arn Prior Health, which is uh, it's, is that a is that a hospital or is it like like a health? Yeah, so it's uh, like a hospital, long term mm-hmm. care home, and some community programs. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, you're also the the uh, chair of the Patient and Family Advisory Council of the Ontario Institute of Cancer Research. Yep. That's a mouthful. <laughs> um, and also a patient ambassador in research engagement with the Canadian Institute of Health Research. So like what, um, what does that look like? For, you, you know, I, I mean, I guess, I guess you, you wouldn't, you know, especially the pa- patient ambassador and the, the, the chair of, of patient family advisory council, um, uh, of the Ontario Institute of Cancer Research. Like I, I, I take it you wouldn't be doing these things if it wasn't for the fact that you had cancer. Right. Um, but in getting involved in those, those types of, um, you know, those types of organizations. What did you, did you find that after getting involved in that, you started to kind of have a, a, a more nuanced or different outlook of your own experience with cancer? I think it was almost opposite, Jeremy. Like, I think after I kind of moved through that, it was really two years of treatment after the reconstruction and I just had a second surgery to kind of make it a bit better. Um, I wanted, I really felt that I wanted to make an impact somehow, but I wasn't really drawn to the traditional sort of like, I don't know, a lot of the breast cancer organizations. I wasn't really drawn to that. I wasn't really drawn to the the advocacy of like, oh, this needs more or what about this? I really kept thinking back to research and I was involved in a few, um, and still am in some clinical trials myself as a patient. Okay. One I was, that I was actually pulled out of, it was uh, for nausea medication. I was so nauseated. We, my surgeon who, or sorry, my oncologist who ran that study was sure I was getting the placebo. And he's like, you know what? I just want to give you the real one, which I mm. really, really appreciate. So he took my, you know, what was best for me and he pulled me out of his own study, which, you know, they never want to pull people out of studies. That's sure, not awesome. Course, so, yeah. so I really appreciate that. So I think I had some exposure to um, clinical trials. One, I actually denied. I said, no, I'm not joining that. Like, because of the way it was spun to me. And then the oncologist came back and explained it 10 million times better. And I was like, oh, okay, sure. So so I felt that was a way I could give back, the way I felt empowered to kind of give back. But then I kind of wanted to see how I could make clinical trials better for patients. And it was actually my oncologist because I'd been so outspoken during my time with him. He sent me an email for that OICR, that Ontario Institute of Cancer Research. That was their inaugural uh, patient and family advisory council. They were looking for people. So because he's a researcher, he got the email and then he just forwarded it to me. And I remember I replied back. I'm like, oh, you're sending this to me because I, I'm such a pain in the ass. And he's like, he's like, he's like, oh, you know, you could probably help out here. So that's how I got involved with that. And then the, then I, I just like it. It's so, um, it's kind of academic, yeah. you know? So I feel like it's very, you're, you're around some interesting people. Like the people that I work with, even in the group are just like superstars, but then you're interacting with scientists mm-hmm. who are interesting people mm-hmm. and, and they're just, yeah, it just, it just uses this part of my brain that I felt like I wasn't really getting to use. And, and the, the help is so concrete. So if I looked at like a, um, they might send me, I don't know, like a questionnaire that they're going to give to a patient in the study. 
and there's a few that I've looked at where then I give the feedback to the scientist or researcher and I'm like, well, this question doesn't make sense. Like as a patient, I don't even know how to answer this. Like sure. maybe consider trying to, you know, ask it like this or um, something like that. So I like to give that help. And then I like to see the end product mm. after. And I think down the line, even those challenges with like we call a knowledge translation, like getting the findings from the studies out into the real world, even though it takes probably too long, that I th- the, the science in the end is, is a big part of it. So mm-hmm. can we find 20 years from now that we don't need six rounds of chemo, we just need three or, or whatever. Like, yeah, so that's how I kind of fell into all that. I, uh, I, really, I really appreciate you kind of walking us through that because I think that, um, I think that, I think that kind of work is obviously really important. Um, and I'm sure there's people, I know for a fact, there's people out there who have, who, who go through a ca- cancer diagnosis you know, they go through the treatment of the cancer and then they're like, get me the fuck out of here. I don't yeah, even want to sure. think about this anymore. I am so done with the idea of cancer. Like, like it just, everything about it leaves a bad taste in my mouth and I want to put it in the past. That's my mom. Yeah, yeah right. Sure, fair. Yeah. But fair. then, and, and totally. But then you also have the people that like maybe feel like what you were feeling, which is like, man, this was, this was really, really tough. And I know that I'm not alone in this and that there's going to be other people in the future that are going to go through this. And I would love to find a way to give back, but probably just like, don't even know, like, I don't know, I guess I'll like wear a pink ribbon on like this certain day (laughs) and like, you know, go on a walk or whatever, Um, which, which maybe doesn't feel like it's, which is also great. Sure. But maybe that doesn't feel like it's tangible enough. It doesn't feel like you're actually like a a part of something that's really making like a, a, a significant difference. You know, a difference that you see or feel. Maybe, maybe because some people do feel. Some people do, right? Yeah. And maybe, but maybe you don't have that. Right. So if there, if you're in that position, where, like, how did you know where to go? Like, how did you know? I mean, obviously, your your doctor reached out to yeah. you for the the OI. Yeah, the first one. I had never heard of OICR before. I knew nothing. Yeah. I wouldn't have known. Um, and then the second one, honestly, LinkedIn. <laughs> <laughs> like, LinkedIn is helpful. LinkedIn. It's helpful. Yeah. LinkedIn is so friggin' helpful. I have no idea. Yeah. I like, you know what else I've done on LinkedIn when I kind of got into this sort of area is that I like, I just message people. Like, I'll type in like patient advocate cancer and then mm. I'll see like what they do. And then, so I, I knew mm. the Canadian Institute of Health Research was a federal government thing and, and it was totally random. And, and they were looking for people with like musculoskeletal impairment okay and so the group is that group is mostly made up of people like whatever arthritis or fibromyalgia or da, da, da. but you know my my angle there was that there's a lot of musculoskeletal fallout to cancer again, yeah that no one ever talks about or which whatever. i would love so, to kind of dive into with you man yeah, guys yeah, about that sure. side of things we need to add that sort of stuff to our linkedin bios we're uh, we're producing a podcast for health <laughs> organizations now and we need to like we need good yeah. we need keyword optimization keyword. Totally. In our LinkedIn bio. We just put, we know Beth. <laughs> <laughs> I love. Porn, Satan, drugs, therapy. It's not just the list of what I'm up to this weekend. I'm comedian Kiki Anderson, and those are just a handful of the taboo topics I've poked and prodded at so far on my podcast, Indecent, the show where we peel at the wallpaper of polite society. 
Each episode digs into the dark underbelly of our culture to dissect the things we aren't allowed to talk about around the dinner table. Featuring conversations with comedians, activists, journalists, academics, they all help me figure out the who, what, and why behind what is and isn't acceptable behavior. Indecent with Kiki Anderson, where NSFW meets LMAO. Mwah. Where are you at in your in your cancer diagnosis, like your cancer battle, your cancer journey, whatever you know, whatever word, wording you want to use? You, yeah. Um, where where are you at with that right now? Yeah, so I've been diagnosed. I've been discharged from my oncologist. Um, so I'm just dealing with my family doctor. We do like six month check ins. They're more like chats, quite honestly. Sure. Um, I did a tremendous amount, of course, as a physio. I like started physio as soon as I was diagnosed because the tumor had gotten so big, which is still wild to to think about how it was there. And I, I didn't know mm. um, that I was getting this thing that's called cording. Again, as a physio, I'd never even heard of it. But it's where your body starts to build these like strings. They feel like strings. They're strings of tissue. And it's like a reaction when your lymph nodes are affected. Huh. It's quite common after mastectomy surgery and I did get it did come back, but I actually had it before. So I noticed it and then when you held up my armpit, when I held my armpit, I could see, like I could see lines, like, like so hard to describe, but it hurt, it hurt. So of course I knew the physio who worked at the cancer center. And so I started to see her and then I just kept going and with a private physio. So I did years of physio to try to get like my shoulder range of motion back. It didn't hmm. entirely come. Um, but it's pretty, it's very functional. It's very functional. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. I mean, that, that's one thing that I feel like not a lot of people really think about, like, like to, to, again, to that example of the person who's like, all right, I've, I have had cancer and you know, I'm, f I'm five years out now. And I, you know, yeah. I rang the bell and it's like, I'm over. I don't want even, yeah. I don't want to think about it. Like I want to put it in the past, but really as soon as you get a cancer diagnosis, like you, you're probably going to have a surgery. Your cancer is never going to yeah. be over like cancer will so you'll, you'll, it'll always be with you in some capacity and i think 100%. a lot of people if anybody really sits and thinks about that most people would probably think about like the psychological problems that come with that which yeah. are fucking they are plenty and they are heavy um but the 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 musculoskeletal uh um uh problems that that you you had mentioned like that was something that i never really yeah. I never really thought about it. I mean, like I guess we thought I thought about it with Brandon because it was very obvious he lost his leg. Like he right. lost his very leg to cancer. So of overt. course, yeah. anybody who loses their leg is going to is going to be facing like years and years of um trying to get used to a, a brand new body. Um and and I don't want to sound I don't want to sound I don't want this to sound like insensitive, but I never really thought about it that way with sure. thinking of having maybe a tumor removed from an organ or, yeah. or even having like, I didn't a either. Uh, I didn't you know, either. a mastectomy. It's like, yeah. okay, well the breasts are gone, but like, it's because the cancer sort of like the cancer just is kind of like this, like, yeah, wow, like overshadowing yeah. monster. It's like, you kind of yeah. think about the cancer and not like, yeah. well, to get All the cancer the out, to yeah. get the tumor out or yeah. like in Brandon's case, like you remove a leg yeah. or yeah, you go in, you have a surgery, like a surgery. I mean, if you, if you said you were having surgery for any other reason, you would immediately be like, well, what's the physio like? Yes. Right. <laughs> you know? Right. Yeah. Exactly. How do you deal with that? Right. And with cancer, and I, it's just like, oh, the cancer. How do you yeah, deal with like the cancer? How's your cancer doing? Right. It's gone. That's it's right. Good. That's yeah. Right. Like the, the mastectomy itself are, is kind of a violent surgery. Like sure. the, the scarring that comes after the swelling, they're digging it, the armpit stuff, like they mess around with your armpit. Oh, like, it's, not good. No, <laughs> it's not good. It's not good. There's a lot of really important things in there. 
and they touch on things and they pull on things and they remove things. So that really, even now, like it's something I think of quite often. So when I get up in the morning, my lovely husband makes me coffee. I sit on the couch. I have a big puppy, a Bernadoodle who likes to jump. So I always put my coffee behind me on this like um, hutch or whatever. Every time I go to do this, it pulls all across my chest under my armpit. And it's like this little like tick, like this little reminder of like, mm. oh mm. yeah, you had cancer. And, and really it's a combination of all the things, like it's a combination of the surgery. Um, it's a big part of the radiation and that was grossly underreported to me. Like I remember the guy said, the surgeon was, or the radiation oncologist said, oh, you might get a stiff shoulder uh, yeah, that's not true. <laughs> like, mm. yeah, that's true. But it was like so much more. And, and I remember actually it was a surgeon who said to me, cause I was complaining about the amount of stiffness and the fibrosis. Like even now I'll, you'll, you'll see me like, I'll, I'll tend to rub my chest a little bit. And I, I'm just sort of like pushing against like the, the skin that's sort of stuck down. And he said, well, you got it bad because you're thin. <laughs> He's like, if you were bigger, and there was more fat moving around, it would have like sort of dissipated a little bit more through it. Mm. And I'm like, oh, great. <laughs> Thank <laughs> like, you. Yeah, that's helpful. Like, that's awesome. <laughs> you know, so yeah. So I really, it really is just a constant sort of reminder and, and it'll never be entirely gone. There'll always be that restriction. There'll always be that physical reminder which just is, is, is what it is, what it mm. is, you know, but it's kind of you know, like I'm the scar, active. like scar tissue and like scar tissue <laughs> in general is just like, it's that, you know, it's like that stamp that that's totally. like, you know, even if you can't really, even if you can't really see it, like, yeah, you know, yeah. Like, even if you can't really see you, it, right. Cause you, you there's feel the scars, like the but... way that that tissue is like, is like, totally. it's almost like a black hole. Like it's, it's yeah. like pulling towards yeah. it and it, it like wants to, yeah. it wants to like let you know. To, yeah, that's a great description. To that point about like having that that constant little reminder and sort of movements like that, and he, even the the things that um, the doctors say, sort of like the comments that they make and and the the unintended sort of consequences mm. that some of those things have when you hear them say it. Like what? <laughs> well, I'm I'm curious what your your mental health journey was like through this entire process in terms of like how you thought you might feel going into this and then yeah. what actually sort of transpired through the course of, of treatment and recovery? Yeah. I think when the initial shock wore off, cause I was truly shocked. I don't know why I was so shocked. Like X amount of years by then I was 16 years in acute care. Like you said earlier, Taylor, like I saw people get sick all the time. Mm -hmm. I really didn't think it would happen to me. I really didn't. And then when it did, I was like, huh? What, like, what is happening here? So once I sort of moved through that, you know, the best thing I did for mental health, and this is another interesting story. So the surgeon, early days, early days, he said to me, don't join a support group. Ooh, wow. Interesting. Yeah. And I was like, why? And he's like, well, you might learn bad things there. So I think his... I, which I'm sure he has a story attached to it, is that his patients would go to support groups and someone would have a horror story or have a bad outcome and then probably run back to him and say, is that going to happen to me? Mm -hmm. Of which he would not be able to answer because who knows, maybe that is, maybe it's not. But it was actually one of the worst pieces of advice I ever got. And uh, 
yeah, this was before, this was early chemo days. Even before that, I was like trying to do something for myself. I actually had a one month period from diagnosis to the start of treatment because the tumor was so big. There was a bit of a, like, what should we do first, chemo or surgery? I ended up doing chemo to shrink it first. And it worked so well, it shrunk it entirely. <laughs> um, but I went to see a naturopath and I'm not necessarily like, even though I used to do acupuncture on people, like I'm not super in that world or necessarily buy in entirely, but it was helpful to go. It made, reassured me that I was like doing mm-hmm. something. Mm-hmm. Let me guess, they gave you a ring dinger. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? She never stood up from behind her desk, not once. <laughs> Let me just, just pull on your like, vitamins from behind her desk. Yeah. yeah. Oh, Charged wow. 170 bucks an hour. <laughs> I can hear. Uh, we yeah. love our naturopath <laughs> listeners, by the way. We, 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 we do. We do. Yeah. I'm Big sure fans of Bowen better than here. that. <laughs> I'm sure many of you get better care than that. But uh, I think it was during that I was like super weepy one day and and she slid across like the the pamphlet for the support group that was in-house in this sort of like wellness organization. Mm -hmm. And it was just for women who had been diagnosed in the last three months. And I remember thinking, oh, this is probably going to be safer because maybe there won't be anyone in this group who has metastatic cancer. Who knows? Maybe, yeah, right? yeah, right, right. Maybe I won't see that and then I'll feel safe. So I, I took, I, I joined. And four years later, I am still in contact with all these women. Best yeah. decision I ever made. Like just the support and moving through something at the same time as everybody else mm-hmm. and being vulnerable and sharing. Like I remember the one that really stuck with me the most was we talked about like, the concept of like, did I do this to myself? Mm. Like, you know, and I remember we went in a circle and, and I'm like, yeah, I think this is karma. Mm. I think karma gave me cancer, Mm. but that's where I was at that moment. Like, I really thought that I really thought that I had, that karma gave me cancer, (laughs) like all the bad things in my life. And, but to speak that in an environment with other women and they just nod, get it, you Mm. know, is the most healing thing ever. I mean, it it is a real, I mean, it's a, it's a bizarre thing for a doctor to give to to so wholeheartedly give that piece of advice. Yeah. I I mean, I get it. I understand it because like as as a as a patient with CF, um support groups and like you know, online forms that that like fell into yeah. that realm of support. Yeah. I it was never for me. And yeah. and and like it's not something that worked for me. It's not something that was helpful for me. But also, I fully understand that for some people, it's fucking everything. Yeah. So, like, for me to ever say to to someone, like, you should never, whatever you do, don't ever go down the yeah. road of like finding support that way. Yeah. That's like that's like telling someone, you know, I, I don't think I would ever if you know if I was an alcoholic, I don't think AA would be for me. Um, for a, a various different reasons, but also I would never tell someone like. Don't definitely stay away from AA. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like that just, that's yeah. just you might seems, say, it seems, you might say, try hey, this it might not be for you. And this might not be that's for right. you. That's but right. But yeah. uh, yeah. the thought that I'm kind of having in this moment as we're, as you're saying that in terms of like talking about support groups is, is kind of how I've never really thought of it this way, but like, um, this is kind of a support group. Yeah. You know, that's we kind exactly of like what I was going to yeah. say. Yeah. Like, short term support group. Yeah. We kind of one hour support. Yeah. Group. Where we like, where, where we sit down and yeah. like somebody talks about their experience and, yeah. and, and says, and, and, and we like hold space for that person. And we do yeah. a lot of like nodding and just like, you know, asking totally. inquisitive questions and like yeah. no judgment and all that totally. stuff. And then, 
And 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 for and although again we've we've talked about support groups a lot, like some of the pros, some of the cons, some people love it, some people don't. Yeah. It's like not once have I ever left a conversation and been like, I wish I didn't have that conversation because now I feel like I'm going to get that disease or that like I am now worse off for having heard these challenging stories. Like it's always, hmm. it's always, it's always good. There's like always something to take from always it. something yeah. to take from yeah. it. You know what surprises yeah. me the most though is that that doctor, like if there's any sort of genre of person or disease or support group that you're going to tell people to stay away from, it definitely wouldn't be the breast cancer survivor support yeah. groups. They're like the most loud and proud. It's a rowdy like, group. They're yeah. like, the, yeah. like, hey, do you get rowdy? If I was going to get one type of cancer to be part of a support group, it would be yeah. breast cancer because yeah. like they're they seem like the funnest people to be. I around. feel like <laughs> breast can I feel like breast like the breast cancer like community is kind of like the like is like the Arbon, like, or like Mary Kay, like rally, like, like I mean, very, very, yeah. I mean, like out of all the episodes we've done on raucous. the show, every time we have a breast cancer episode, A, the highest downloads we ever get on any episode. That's why we're only so, doing breast so thanks, cancer. Beth. Thanks for uh, giving us a boost. B, the guests that we have on are always a fucking riot. They're always so fun to talk to, right? Yeah. And so interesting. Mm. And, and C, um, there's always, the, you know, like, like the like, there's something just about the the like the booby community that is like <laughs> that. There's there's something to like lean into there. It's like it is it is it is it's it is a bit of a it's a bit of a it's a bit of a club. It's yeah, a bit of a club really that like is. that I think that you know I think you're right, Brian. Like if you're if you're gonna tell someone not to find support, <laughs> yeah, probably don't. Probably don't use that community to not find support because uh, yeah. I think, oh, I think and it's look, there. like it's, it's the there. it's a club that nobody wants to be a part that's of, right. but when you're a part of it, like it's there. At least people. you got that support there. Yeah, yeah, that's and right. it has, I, yeah, and I think it has so many like the breast cancer community has so many layers. Like you can be that one out dressed in pink boa with yeah. you know carrying like the boob <laughs> mug. And yeah, yeah, you can yeah. be that person. It's there for you. You know, yeah, like yeah. but then there's like the quiet support group in the court. Like there's yeah. all these things. Like the support is there. You just have to reach out. Like yeah, you have yeah. to reach out, and it might just be one past survivor who's mm-hmm. your person, or it might be your whatever, and and. But yeah, yeah. I remember once a friend, I was in a store and, and it was like a boob mug. Like it was a mug that had yeah. she's like, Beth, do you want this? I'm like, no, I don't. <laughs> like, she's I like, oh, I just figured yeah. <laughs> because of the, the boob. Oh, the boob no, things. Quite the opposite. I do not want that mug. Yeah. <laughs> speaking, put that back. speaking of boobs, and it's, I hope it's okay for me to ask this, but yeah. when you had your, we, we just recently had a really lovely guest on, uh, Karen from, uh, from Montreal, I believe. And she runs this organization that basically pays for women who have had reconstructive surgery to get tattoos over their breasts oh, yeah. if that's like something that they're looking yep. for. And yeah. it could be it could be anything from like a nipple tattoo to like a full fucking yeah. beautiful chest piece. Yeah. Um, what was the what were the like the thoughts or discussions that you were having when you went through reconstruction? Like, mm-hmm. were you are you the type that's like, all right, I'm going to put like a, a fucking rock and eagle on like my new boobs or <laughs> or or are you like, you know, the whole like the, you know, no nipples, the Barbie, the like the Barbie boob thing. Or <laughs> I know that there's like ways that they can like sort of surgically yeah. add like a, a, you know, add a nipple. Uh, yeah, yeah, nipple. Like I thought I was, I was looking for a fucking yeah. is that that's the word. The areola is not the nipple. Um, 
but like add a little nubbin, you know? Yeah. Like is <laughs> is nubbin. there what what do you when you when you just when you have when you have a mastectomy? Yeah. What was going through your mind? Like what did you yeah. did you have like a catalog in front of you? Like here's the the options that you have. <laughs> you know, I was so <laughs> It's an excellent question. I was so clueless. I had no idea. Like I truly had no idea. I actually thought implants were the only option to me. Right. But I ended up doing that so it's called Deep, deep, inferior epigastric perforator. And that's actually referring to the vessel because they cut into your abs and they thread this vessel up to your new boobs, or they call them your mounds. Uh, I know. Fun. So not sexy. Fun. Yeah. I know. No, they don't call, call them mounds. mounds. They do. They call them your mounds. That's a, they, um, they And they thread, they thread it, they thread it up. So... Uh, yeah, so I was never offered like the surgical nipple. No one ever offers me. I don't even think I thought to right, ask. I, right. I did know. I do know about the tattoos. I haven't had it. It it appeals to me, but it's there's not like a lot of options in Ottawa. And sure. then I when I think about it, I'm like, do I want to travel to Toronto? I don't yeah. know if I do. It's funny because I've had other tattoos, like just like Amanda, who was getting like the sleeve of tattoos since I had breast cancer. I'm like, I got tattoos too, but I got like an art, like a flower yeah, and I yeah. got like a saying. But it's funny, I, even though I've had tattoos, that's I don't keep getting drawn back to that. And it's sort of like, uh, I, you know what I saw recently that I thought I might pull the trigger on just to try it? They're actually like they're like stickers. They're like 3D oh, nipple stickers, but they're like cool. they're silicone. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I think it was like pushed to me on I don't know Instagram or something like that. Yeah. And the algorithm's good. <laughs> yeah, it is. That's and I'm like, super maybe I'll cool. try that, and then yeah. like if I see and I look at it, I'm like, this is worth it. Then maybe I'll do the tattoo. get the tattoo. Like, get a yeah. Yeah, What's right. the deal with like? Wow. Can you tell you, say a little bit more about how the yes. thing is thread up through yeah. and oh, yeah, it's what wild. that whole process? What's it called again? I just want to. So it's called DEP surgery, and that's when they take they take. So it's another short term you might hear is flap. DF flap. Yes, right. Okay. Yeah. 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 So the the most common flap they will do now. They used to do your lats, like you're here, but they've gotten away from that because the scar is massive and really can really impede with your, I mean, your yeah. function, right? And they were taking part of the muscle at that time. They were taking part of your latissimus dorsi, which is a big important muscle. Mm -hmm. So they got away from that, but they'll take like your stomach and you do have to Amanda put it so nicely. She, she just said, I didn't have the right body for that. What she meant is she was too thin. So right. she was too thin to have that. You need to have a certain amount of fat around your stomach. So Whoa. they'll they'll take the fat butt, and and you will get the comments of like, oh, you're getting a free tummy tuck. I'm like, no. Right. No, I'm not. So they 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 take that like really they remove it, but they need to they need blood flow going to your chest. And so what they do is they actually cut into your ab and they pull out like this vessel and they thread it. And I, this part I actually didn't know either until after surgery because it hurt so bad. Remember, they keep in the hospital for five days because they need to make sure that the new <laughs> tissue takes, that it doesn't die. So, but when they, when they cut it and then they thread it and they sew your abs back up, like my right hip, it still hurts. Like right. two years later, like it hurts. Like it, and the part of my abs, they sort of mound a little bit. Like they kind of like bulge, almost looks like a hernia, but not not quite as significant. Um, but they also cut part of your cloud, like they cut part of your rib. Because I remember wow. I, was in this, I was in the, and no one told me that. I'm such Whoa. a patient. No one told me that, but I swear to God, no one told me that. Okay. I remember I was in the hospital and I was like, why does my, why does my chest hurt so bad? Like, why does this, you know, rib? And she's like, well, we cut it. 
I'm like, what do you mean you cut it? And she's like, we cut it because that's how the, like the vessel needed to thread through. And I'm like, what? Anyways. It, like a I've slot? Had, yeah. So I've had wow. a few friends consider this surgery and I've, I, I haven't discouraged, I wouldn't use the word discourage, but I have been very, very, very honest on what the recovery is like. And it's mm-hmm. massive, yeah. massive, massive. And so I have a few friends I've just shown from the support group to stay flat. And I think that's a really great decision if that's what you want. I don't regret, I would do it again. It was something that was important to me, um, but- You just I weren't just anticipating kept... how yeah. how big of a deal. That's yeah, it. Yeah. That's... I mean, I like, I'm looking at photos like on, on uh, Google image search and it's, yeah. it, it is, it's pretty wild. It's like, um, <laughs> You know, it's wild. It's a lot. It, of it's a, it's, like a, it's, it's, wild. it's crazy. It's a, I mean, I, we say this a thousand times over and over yeah. every year, but like, fuck, it's crazy how we've gotten to this place where we've learned how to do these things to our bodies. Yeah. Totally. It's, it's so it? wild, but yeah. it reminds me your, your situation and talking to other people who are thinking about doing it and sort of shedding some light on some of the things they might not otherwise hear about yeah. um, from the doctors. It reminds me a lot of, of my mom's, um, situation with her surgery and she was sort of presented with these three options for she had bladder cancer and it was like mm-hmm. we either remove the cancer um, and don't remove the organs and if we do that there's a high chance that it you know will come back come back yeah um we we could remove everything and then rebuild your bladder from scratch and wow. and and then that like that's a very intense and invasive surgery yeah. Um, or we could remove some of the stuff and then do this like sort of like neo bladder, but then you have to self catheter for the rest mm-hmm. of your life. And so like there's three options and none of them are really good, you know, <laughs> totally. but like you're like sort of forced to make this one and all of them are drastically different in terms yeah. of like, you know, the, the length of the surgery, the length of recovery, the effect that it has, you know, afterwards. And, and like, they're exactly that they're just options. Like there's no, totally. there's not like, uh, there's no right answer. You know, there's the, very personal. there's the yeah. chance that like, you're going to do something and decide that, Oh fuck, something else might've been better. Yeah. It's really, totally. it's, yeah, really, it's super hard yeah. to do. Absolutely. hundred percent. Yeah. Thanks for saying that. It is, it is. It's so hard. And I ended up going with this one because once your skin's radiated, if you put an implant in there, there's a strong possibility that it'll flip or it'll get contorted because your skin's thinner and it's tighter. <clears throat> so they really don't like to do that much anymore. They really mm. stay for it. If you have, if they have any fat on you, they're going to try to find it and use it. Um, implants need to be replaced usually every 10 years. Oh, so wow. this surgery is like the way I had to have two because the sizing and was really wild after he ended up mm. fixing it. But, um, I should be good forever, mm. right? Okay. I should be okay. good forever. Right. Right. And like they feel normal and they're warm where with ah, an implant, it's right. cold, like it's cold. And so it's a more sort of realistic kind of. Mm. I've heard of some like, wow. Um, wow. some like I've heard recently, I feel like it's been, people have been more vocal about it over the past couple of years of like some, some real horror stories about implants, not, not, not specifically like <laughs> post cancer diagnosis yeah. implants, but like implants in general of like having, Having like a long-term, like sort of yeah, like rejection there's that, issues. Yeah. There's, there's, a, I think they even call it, I don't know if they're calling it a syndrome. I can't remember the name, but there was some sort of syndrome when we were coming down where they get these implants and then they got really sick. Like just yeah. really feeling yeah. unwell, like lots of fatigue. And, yeah. I and had a friend them out and, and they were better. She was like, 
Fuck, man. It's called BII, breast implant illness. She had a really, really rough, like, must have been three or four years where, I mean, she was just on a roller coaster with her health and, and, uh, like, I mean, just really, really fluctuated mentally and physically. Yeah. And, um, and she got her, uh, she got her implants taken out and she was like, holy shit. Yeah. I'm like, I, that was, that was it. Like I was, and, and, you know, that not being, uh, that not being something that people are thinking about, like the medical community is thinking about. So whenever she, you know, presented with X issue, it was never, it was never really linked or thought to be, thought to be linked to, to the implant. So, so it was kind of just this, just like in and out of the, of the healthcare system, trying to figure out what the hell was going on, um, with her health and, you know. That low and behold, it ended up being that. But yeah, um, that's an, an anecdote, obviously. Beth, um, uh, what would you say is the the biggest thing that your cancer diagnosis has taken away from you? Hmm. It's taken away from me. I think I was a lot more. I saw. I was a lot more naive. Like it took away my naiveness. Like it, it took away that sort of like maybe even lightheartedness a little bit. Like mm. I, I'm much more of a realist. I much more, I, I don't really fuck around anymore. Like I don't really take bullshit. I don't, if someone's not giving to me straight and I think they're not being direct, I'm gonna call them out on it, you mm. know? Like, so I'm sure some people see that as like, oof, where did nicer Beth go to? <laughs> like right. who's this chick? But I think that's sort of served me well. I mm. think it, in day to day, that serves me mostly, you know. Um, but yeah, like the very much, I have uh, many women will reach out to me and they'll say like, oh, I had a positive mam, like something's going on with mammogram, they want to call me back. And I think they're reaching out to me to say like, tell me I don't have cancer, mm. but I won't do that. So I'll just say, oh, this is really stressful for you. Like yeah. that's, that's tough. Sorry, you're going through that. But because I'm so much of a realist, because I know what the other side looks like, but I also know that there's there's no reason it can't be her. Because now I realize there's no reason it couldn't be me. Like, I really thought before, like, I'm not going to get cancer. Like, talking about, like, I eat well, I exercise well, blah, blah, blah. blah. Uh, then, and I did, and, and I've spent the last couple of years, especially even maybe the last two, being more out of active treatment, being like, yeah, why not me? Like, mm. why not me? Bad things mm. can happen. To, bad things will happen to everybody. And mine just happened to happen two weeks before my 40th birthday. Mm-hmm. What would you say is the biggest? And I, f- I feel like, may, like maybe you've already answered this in that, but, but maybe not. Uh, what, would you, what would you say is the biggest thing that it's given you? Mm. Those, I really made some great friendships. Mm. I really, those, the women that I've met through this, I, I, I always will call that my silver lining, my silver. So I really, really, really still hate, I won't, I won't buy into this culture of like everything happens for a reason. I don't know. I hate it. I don't like it. I, I, I think if you can find, if you can find a silver lining, then awesome. And my silver lining was the people that I met through this. I've made some great friendships. I really understand much better the term community. Like I really understand the term community. Before I think it was just a term for me. Like it was just like, oh yeah, you have a group of people and that whatever you like. But I, I understand community and I understand the value of friendships much more. And I've always been someone who's had a lot of friends. 
um, I'm pretty loyal friend and I've had a lot of friends, but I, they're a lot deeper, I think now. And I just appreciate them so much. Like I keep, I, one thing I always tell people is I don't know where I would be without my friends, Mm. like their support and their, the way they just showed up over and over. And that's my new breasty friends. (laughs) And then it's like my old school, like ones that have been always, falling off um the ones that have always been around so yeah mm. that would definitely be my uh be my silver lining for sure mm-hmm. cool. well beth uh this it the, the, i really appreciate this conversation i mean this this might be one of my favorite conversations we've had so far this year that's great um yeah. you're you're really really lovely guest and um i just want to i just want to thank you thank you for you know having the um having the the courage to come on a show and talk to you know thousands of strangers about your personal uh health journey when it comes to cancer but also thank you for like being for you know setting an example of of how how important self-advocacy really is when it comes to your health um and uh i i feel like this conversation hopefully will be really inspiring for a lot of people that are in a similar position um, who feel like they, you know, they could use a little bit of that, that, um, that like power to step into yeah. their role as a patient and like, and speak for what it is that they need in those moments totally. when they feel scared or, you know, maybe alone or, um, unsure. So, uh, we really do value the conversation that we had here today and, and it's been a, a delight. Thank you. Oh, thanks so much guys. It was so great chatting with you and getting to know you. Yeah, this has been super fun. I really enjoyed it. Well, there you go, folks. Hope you enjoyed that conversation. As always, we are coming at you Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. And if you are a fan of the podcast and you want to support the podcast, there's a number of ways you can do that. First of all, you can leave a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. We love reading them. You can simply rate the podcast on the Spotify mobile app, if that's where you're listening. Or if you want to join the conversation, hop on over to our Discord. The link is in the show notes of this episode. And uh, we have a lovely little community over there of sickos and non-sickos all hanging out, chatting. And uh, hey, you could even help produce the podcast over there if you want. You can, again, find that link in the show notes below. Sick Boy Podcast is produced and co-hosted by myself, Jeremy Saunders, Taylor McGilvery, and Brian Stever. The show is managed by Jeffrey Lonis over at Talent Bureau. The sound design of this episode is brought to you by Donovan the CPAP Morgan. And of course, the theme music is from the band Take Part. That is it for this week. I'm Jeremy, and this is Sick Boy. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.